Listening to the Animation Addicts podcast with the Rotoscopers, episode 43 The Thief and the Cobbler. I love you. Hashtag Sean Connery. podcast is brought to you by audible.com audible is the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with over 100,000 downloadable titles to choose from including fiction nonfiction, all types of literature for listeners of the animation addicts podcast audible is giving you a one month free trial this allows you to download one audiobook of your choice any book you want is yours to keep we recommend going along with this episode to listen to arabian nights that is the collection of folk tales that aladdin and the thief and the cobbler are based on as so they're really really great to help you understand the story behind the movie. So to get your free trial, go to the rotoscopers.com slash audible. Welcome to the Animation Addicts podcast with the Rotoscopers, Disney, DreamWorks, Pixar, Don Bluth, and everything in between. We are your hosts. My name is Chelsea Robson. We also have Morgan Stradling and Mason Smith with us. Say hi, everyone. Hi, yep. Yes, everyone. Master. I will say hi. <laughs> <laughs> We're just a bunch of friends. We get together uh, every couple weeks uh, and discuss a, a predetermined uh, film of animation quality. We just go through the, some of the history. We talk about it. We joke around. And we have a fun old root and riled and good time. Mm-hmm. Yep. The rootinous tootinous good time. <laughs> <laughs> so how's your week, everyone? It's been good. I've enjoy. I've been enjoying not being at Comic Con all week. <laughs> yeah. Once again, Mason Smith, along with the commoners, the common animation geeks, and general geeks who cannot attend. Who cannot attend because he's poor, and Comic Con wouldn't give him a press pass. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You know, I'm starting to get kind of sick of all the updates. You know. There was a lot going on, but I didn't feel there was too much animation-wise that happened. So, I mean, while it would have been cool to attend, I mean, I've been there before. Yeah, I understand that why we wouldn't get press passes in an <laughs> animation-only podcast. Well, I mean, we do some reviews of movies, like on the YouTube channel. We do, indeed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, I don't know, maybe yet next year. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, next year I'd rather go to SIGGRAPH than, um, than Comic-Con. Totally. I'd rather go to both. I mean, if we're doing I'd Rathers. She'd rather go to SigCon, convention <laughs> of cigarettes. <laughs> Shame on you. But um, but yeah, so that's been fun. I'm getting ready to start. I think in about a month's time, I'm going back to school, which is cool, because I, I really miss school. Aw, little nerd I wanna, Mason. Like, <laughs> I know. I want to like go to a place where I'm expected to do artistic stuff. <laughs> Instead of just work <laughs> and make money. Wow, you sound a bit like the director um, in our movie we're going to be talking about today. I know, right? <laughs> oh, but, oh, no. The dilemma of art versus money. I don't want to be at A&M for, for 30 years. Yeah, that's true. You're like, let's get, let's bust this out. <laughs> Morgan, what have you been doing? Yeah, my week's been great. Just working, nothing too special. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm pretty excited because I now have a change in address. I am living in Nashville, Tennessee, which makes me super happy. I love it here, FYI. Awesome. Every, every time we say Nashville on the show, I feel like there should be some sort of like country guitar riff that plays in the background. 
awesome. Okay, folks, so this episode is going to be like in two parts, as you know by the title. Um, our movie focus for this episode is The Thief and the Cobbler. Now, maybe half of our listeners are going, oh, great, that Aladdin knockoff that's on Netflix. <laughs> and the other ones are probably being like, oh, yes, I've been wanting to talk about this anime, this movie. No one knows about it like I know about it. Well, we people do, and that's us. <laughs> <laughs> I use the word art quite sparingly. I don't think there are many actual artists in the world. Dick is one of them. There was real satisfaction in doing it. It was something really special that we were all working on. Wow, what is this? This is just the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. The thing with the thief that I'm just trying to do, to call a masterpiece, when you, when you master a medium in the old days, if you were a master... Painter, and then you did your masterpiece. Well, this is an old-fashioned. I've, I've mastered this medium at last. And I'm going to do a masterpiece, I hope, if I can ever finish the thing. We wanted to create the greatest animation film of all time, but it didn't happen. It was this building in London with these people working in it that were going to save the art of animation and take it beyond. Okay, so Thief and the Cobbler. Uh, on the outside, it's like this diamond in the rough kind of thing. Oh, on no. the outside, <laughs> it is this unassuming Aladdin knockoff on Netflix. <laughs> but on the inside, it is much more. Um, <laughs> um, this movie has quite a history. Released in 1993, but it's not like it was made over a period of two years. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, as you shall see, my Padawan learners who are out there listening, the story of this film, like not really the story of the film, but the story of how the film was made is quite epic um, in that it, it took somewhere around 30 years to quote unquote complete with a question mark. Yeah. <laughs> what happens is there is a new documentary coming out called The Persistence of Vision, which we were very fortunate to see before it was released. Directed by Kevin Shrek. <laughs> I'm not, sounds like <laughs> Shrek. <laughs> I, does I does he have too. layers? <laughs> Grab your torch and pitchforks. <laughs> and it's a really nice documentary. Very it's well a done. lot of it's a lot of interviews. It's a lot of uh, source material. Almost zero on screen involvement by the director, um, which uh, which can be a really good approach. He more like compiled a bunch of the history of the development of the film. But the uh, the story of the development of, of The Thief and the Cobbler, if you can even call that, because it went by like four different names, mm -hmm. um, it can be kind of confusing to the uninitiated. Um, and having a, a kind of a visual history like this really helps people understand. I was a little confused at first because it seems like there's four or five different versions if you look on Wikipedia. And due, the, due to the eccentric nature of Wikipedia writers, uh, it, can, it can be kind of confusing. And so um, I really enjoyed it, and it's a really cool documentary. Like, it's, it is what it is, and it's pretty cool. 
Yeah, like I, as I was watching it, I wasn't really sure what to expect. I wasn't really in on the history. I'm probably one of those people who before seeing the documentary and then seeing this movie had never seen Thief in the Collar before. It was just exactly like, mm, yeah, that's that crappy knockoff movie that looks really weird. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I really got I'm really glad I got to see this because it has so much history. It honestly made me cry at the end because you realize that this wasn't any sort of knockoff attempt at all. It was it predated, you know, even the Disney Renaissance, even, you know, years and years and years of effort went into this movie. Um, and yeah. so it's actually sort of tragic in a way how it all ends up. And so I'm really glad that we were able to see it. Um, it's currently playing in um, selected film festivals. Um, they're not quite sure about how uh, distribution is going to occur after because it has a lot of copyrighted material from Disney and clips from different movies that, you know, this is, <laughs> this is a student film. So you can do it as a documentary, but you can show it in the film festivals. But beyond that, it's a big question mark. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, this was a tragedy and it wasn't meant to be this Aladdin knockoff. So please don't think that, folks. Like, the story, it's the story of Richard Williams, an animator since age 12. Mm -hmm. And uh, the premise of the documentary was this guy was out to make the greatest animated film of all time. Bit ambitious. (laughs) Yeah, It was very (laughs) ambitious, but then the work that he did on this film was just nuts. I mean, 30 years of development. Yeah. Yeah. The battle of uh, the licensing and, and getting funding and stuff, it's just, ooh. And a, and a tragic and devastating end, definitely. Mm-hmm. It hurts. So you, we talk kind of about how this is, but Richard Williams really wanted this to be his masterpiece. It wanted to be yeah, his right. magnum opus, right? So this was his big thing. So as an artist, I'm not an artist, so I don't really know. I mean, should you go I out am. and say, this is going to be my masterpiece? Should you set with that goal in mind? Or do masterpieces just happen as a result of lots of years of experience and talent? Ooh, ooh, me, me. I'm an artist. I'm an artist. Ooh, Pick me. Mason, the artist. Okay, okay, thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Opposed to Chelsea, dog. who's the singing artist. <laughs> she, hey, she's her own kind of artist. It's true. Um, hi, my name is Mason Smith. I study visualization. Um, my view is that I think you can do it both ways. <laughs> um, you can set out with the goal to make a masterpiece. With me, my best work always happened by accident, and it always happened after I um, after I experimented with a new technique. Mm-hmm. I think the word masterpiece is used very loosely, but it's important to watch for when an, uh, an artist declares something to be his or her masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Richard Williams was definitely a master animator, although some of his earlier animation tests for what, what was the film supposed to be called? Nardusine? Nasruddin. Nasruddin. Yeah, Nasruddin. Nasruddin. Um, they didn't. They looked really kind of static and not very, not really good. And then the animation was just like amazing later on, like when they had to change up all the characters. So I don't know if he was learning all this, like if years of experience working on this film made it eventually his masterpiece. But I think I don't know if from the beginning he wanted it to be his masterpiece. Oh, I have I have a comment. Oh, oh, pick me, pick me. Oh yeah, sorry. Give the mic to her. Okay, so. I actually think that it's kind of in the way you look at it. For example, if I am, you know, beginning with the end in mind in a certain state, like he wanted to put in the effort to make this his final piece, his big thing. And so I think that's probably where he both went right and went wrong. 
So he just, he wanted to make this the most technically amazing, perfect, like the very best he could ever do. Mm -hmm. And so that, in that sense, this was his masterpiece, his piece that showed that he was a master. Yeah, I agree with Chelsea there because I'm pretty sure he didn't plan on making anything greater than this after. I'm pretty sure he just wanted to lay down and die after, <laughs> yeah. after finally after finally <laughs> really after finally finishing this film. But laying down and dying knowing that he created something truly amazing that the world had never seen before. This Dexter's Laboratory. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe I was launching into a monologue from a cartoon. Um if it wasn't supposed to be his masterpiece, it was supposed to be his his life work. Yeah. Like this was supposed to be when you think of Richard Williams, that was supposed to be what you thought of, and pretty much that was supposed to be the only thing. Yeah, because he starts this in 1964, and because he goes with this masterpiece, you know, mantra in his head, yeah, it, it takes a long time because he's such a perfectionist. He wants everything to be perfect. He's not doing it for commercial reasons. He's doing it for artistic reasons. But when it comes to an animated movie, you need to have those commercial funding, or at least some funding, to be able to do anything. Um, that's why after 20 years, he still only had 10 to 15 minutes of finished animation because as we'll learn, we learned in the doc- documentary that he was so nitpicky about everything. People would spend three months doing a scene and he would throw the entire thing out. So it didn't seem to have any regard for time, effort and schedule, I guess. Well, may- effort, yes, but maybe not schedule. Yeah. And, I, and you definitely mentioned the big conflict that the documentary addresses is making art for art's sake and taking your time and making sure it's a masterpiece and the commercial side of of art. Because I think more than other art forms, animation can be a very commercial art. Yes. Because people love it so much because it fascinates the whole world. It's like dinosaurs. Everyone wants to commercialize dinosaurs. But then they kill you. Then they bust out of their cages and kill you. And um, <laughs> so I think that's like the big thing here. I don't think, I don't think the guy. I mean, there's management issues. There's like just business smarts issues. You know, mm-hmm. the guy really could have. I mean, he it really he really could have used like getting a minor in business. <laughs> <laughs> like like me. <laughs> I'm not gonna pull a Dick Williams. So. Um, yeah, that okay, first I just want to say something really quick. Sure. Why why in the world would anybody willingly just say, "Hi. Hi, my name's Richard, but call me Dick." Why? Yeah, kind of a, <laughs> Why would you do that? Kind of an old school thing, I guess. Yeah, it is. <laughs> like, why? Anyway, moving on. Well, you know, I I relate this to Walt Disney and Roy Disney because Walt was very much an artist and he was a visionary and he had all these ideas. But he had his brother Roy to sort of rope him in and to keep him anchored so he couldn't drift too far. And Roy was really the financial head. He always had that in mind. And the two really played off each other quite well. I mean, we see how successful the studio was able to become. And it's because that pairing, you know, the the art side was able to be balanced by the realist who kind of saw, okay, yes, we can't live in this fantasy world. We have budgets and we have to get things done um you know were walt disney's the most artistic ever made no but they got made yeah and that's pretty much that's they got made and they got people to go see them yeah they they pulled themselves out of that low point and into the renaissance you know and that wasn't that wasn't like all roy disney walt disney obviously but um i think by then disney already had a tradition of good business moves yeah or maybe they just got lucky who knows (laughs) 
but yeah, so this Richard Williams guy, he's he's a brilliant artist. I like the parts at the end where he's teaching, um, and he's got like an animation like like lesson catalog, and he's got, you know, he's got the videos, and he does the classes, and he does the books, and like, like he obviously knows. And um, but let's just talk. Let's talk about what went wrong. Well, in the documentary, there was somebody who said that Dick's view on money was that it was there to destroy his life and ruin everything that he was there to do. But really, money is just a discipline. And if you're able to, like Morgan was talking about, bring in the realist with the fantasy, you know, if you balance those out correctly, it is possible to do both. I mean, I haven't really figured out how, but I'm sure it's got to be possible. (laughs) Yeah, I think if you want to do great things like in the animation world, you kind of have to commercialize. You kind of have to sell yourself um, to people who will give you opportunities um, to to do better things, you know. And that's why he had he did commercials. I mean, his studio was set up and they had the commercial arm where they made TV commercials and different shorts and stuff. For the sole purpose to finance this great masterpiece, this this great animated film. And so he always kind of had that on the backtrack. And because that was sort of, all right, we need the money, so we have to do this. And then the production gets put on hold while we're making these commercials. And then you go back. Like, it really sort of hindered the development of the film because you're always having to go back to get those funds because you don't have a constant stream. Yeah, so it wasn't like he wasn't wasn't marketing himself and stuff. He was actually quite good with a lot of the different commercials, and he knew how to make a punch. Like uh, He knew how to make an impression, I guess you could say, in one scene. And it showed many times where it talked about how he was able to – he could do so many really good sequences and just do like a a single sequence really, really well. Um, But he just had a hard time getting past that. So – there was one commercial that it showed and it had like this Hercules type guy climbing a mountain and he's just like <laughs> climbing and it's like, ah, oh, the man of steel type feeling. And he climbs up to the top of this mountain and like the gods come down and say, you did well. Now take care of this gift I give. And it's like aftershave type <laughs> stuff. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's good marketing towards men. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. It was hilarious. I really liked it. And um, I think for, I think, and we'll talk about this, like what he does in the film, but he like basically like drew a mountain and like he animated like a camera swooping up the mountain and showing the guy climbing from behind and the guy climbing from behind, from up front, like in one shot. And he just like hand drew it. Like the guy really had a hold on his drawing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. It's not like there were totally bad things that came out of it. Like he did, have the commercial side of his career. Well, uh, another thing is like he was very, we kind of talk about how talented he was, but he won Oscars for his work. Yeah. But they really didn't mean anything to him. Yeah. Like I, I totally blew over the fact that he was the, like the lead animator for Roger Rabbit. His studio. Yeah. I mean, they, I always knew that Roger Rabbit was produced in England, but, you know, you hear names and you you kind of just, they go over your head, they go over your head until finally you have something to anchor it to. And now, finally, I'm like, oh, Richard Williams Studio, that studio was the one that produced Roger Rabbit. It makes sense now. And it's just, he did it, and it's really good work in there, but then he just didn't care. He won an Oscar for it. It was just, meh. That's, yeah. That wasn't my project. It was just sort of an assignment. 
Yeah, and he talks about that a little. He had this like hallway of all of their awards that they had ever won in their for their studio that would go down into the boardroom. And he says, "Yeah, I set it all up right there because as people pass by, it does something to them." You know, he's like, "Well, yeah, a lot of people say that it's all rubbish, and really, it is kind of rubbish. I mean, it all just is whatever, but." It does something to you as you walk by. I mean, without that, all we have is a building and the staff in it and an unfinished picture. The, on the one side, he does see that it's just a, you know, a little statuette. But at the same time, like this being his quote unquote masterpiece, he kind of tied those things together. So I don't really agree that, you know, the awards didn't mean anything to him. I think they meant a lot to him, but just he wanted this award. Yeah. This thing. Yeah, it seems to me that he, um, like, I can imagine him being kind of, like, annoyed, like, winning all these awards, but in the back of his mind, he always had his eye on on uh, Thief and the Cobbler. And I'm sure he was frustrated, like, this is great, but, like, the world hasn't seen anything yet because I've got this amazing film that I've been working on, you know? You know, I guess I guess the awards had some worth to him because he used them kind of as a motivation for the rest of the studio, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a funny thing. I think rightfully, I think he was right to, you know, to kind of pass by the awards and focus on his big goal. But at the same time, it kind of turned into his obsession, you know, him being the eccentric artist that he was. And really, I think I think the the main cause of his downfall was just a, a bunch of mismanagement. Holy cow, mismanagement. I mean, I'm no business major here, but I am a business minor. um, (laughs) That's got to count for something. (laughs) That's got to count for something. And and I I really think I in the documentary, I saw um, some problems with the management. Um, You don't have to have any sort of business experience to realize, holy cow, this is not being managed well. Um, We can just say it took 31 years total to sort of get this off the ground and almost done sort of tripping at the finish line he had this vision of what he wanted to be people would spend months and months and months and then he would change it he would cut it he'd have him redo it there's one thing where they talk about there's a scene of the dying soldier and it was supposed to just be a quick little 10 10 second scene you know the whole the soldier climbing onto the horse and he liked it so much that he kept extending it and extending it extending it and it ends up being over a minute long and just to me that's I'm like, you're not focused on what you want to achieve. Um, you're just seeing something that's really cool. Let's make it bigger. When that really had nothing so much to do with the story, it was cool animation. And don't get me wrong, animation in that he actually did in his studio did gorgeous. Like every yeah. body part, every piece of hair, every piece of clothing is flapping. It's moving. It's just flowing. It's very, very fluid. I like it. But that's expensive to do. And... When that happens, I mean, I can see how things just piled and piled and piled up. You know, we learn, as many of the animators did near the end in the 80s, that he didn't even have storyboards for this movie, which in animation is... Yeah, that's a big deal. Um, yeah, no wonder they sort of standardized this. I feel like even at the time, like even in the 30s, 40s, 50s, yes, storyboards were a thing (laughs) because animation is so expensive to produce that you need to tack your story down from the very beginning. You need to have everything established. You need to know where it's going. You need to know to the second how much you need to animate because that is literally time is money spent there. And so the fact that he didn't have that, you know, it, it says that it it opened the eyes to the animators and some of the people who were visiting the studio. And it opened mine. I, uh, my, my jaw just dropped when I heard that. I was like, the guy's mad. 
Well, here's the deal. There's a thing called pose-to-pose animation, you know, which is where you establish your keyframes and you plan it out, the timing real well. Mm-hmm. And then there's a straight-ahead animation, which is just you just go for it, you know, and you, you kind of just wing it and just do next frame, next frame, next frame, next frame. And it can be really beautiful. And there's certain artistic, like, appeal and beauty to doing straight-ahead instead of pose-to-pose. But completely skipping storyboard is nuts. <laughs> Maybe there's going to be like super artistic um, listeners who are like, oh, well, you're so narrow minded. And I'm not talking about just like experimental animation or um, just kind of like abstract, you know, experimental stuff, because that's not what he was trying to do. There was experimental type animation that no one had done before, but the guy was trying to make a motion picture Mm -hmm. and it's got to end sometime. You know, I've read I've read in some sources that he didn't want to do storyboarding at all. And I read in some. And I, in the documentary, it seemed like he, he hadn't storyboarded the last part of the film and he hadn't planned on it. But that might be one reason why it took so long to officially finish the film, because when you don't plan something out, like animation is very macro to micro. You look at the big picture and then you slowly break it down and slice it in half until um, you get every little movement of every little digit of every little character. But he didn't really do that with this film. When you fail to do that, it takes so long to just start. Like, okay, how am I going to do this scene? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't have a plan, so, you know. <laughs> you know, it was like he was thinking like an animator and not a storyteller. Yes. Because if you're thinking about like a storyteller, you've got to know where your climax is. You've got to know what is the key moment that you're you're building up to. And I don't believe that he did. He was just trying to make the technically the most amazing draw dropping film you could come up with. So like every moment was a climax and it's just technically, but not story wise. I agree. I had the same thought. He was a master animator, but he was not a master storyteller. Um, We watched two versions of the film, the, 1995 Miramax version, which is cut up and and songs are added. Things are changed, removed and the original uh, it's called the recobbled edition. It's the original cut, I guess that was shown to the studios, you know, a few years before production was shut down. And um, even then the story is good, but it's, it's very erratic. And I don't feel that he had that narrative quality and essence in him to, to mesh the two, to really make the pinnacle of all animated stories. He really didn't. And, and I guess that's okay. Like he mentioned he wanted to make something like Lawrence of Arabia or like Ben-Hur, yep. like these these three, three four-hour-long epic films that are just spectacular in scale and, 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 you know, the locations and, like, everything. But at some point, you have to, like, make a story. Because if he wanted to be this to be, like, the greatest animated film of all time, it needed to have a structured story. It needed to have, like, real relationships that people could re- could uh, relate to and find appeal in. And that doesn't just mean that they're beautiful characters. It means that um, we get a relationship out of it and we get like a feeling out of it. Yeah, I didn't care. In, in either of the, the versions that we watched, I didn't care about any of the characters particularly. I, I just cared about Zigzag. <laughs> like you just, it's, I don't know. It was just, it was almost like you walk into a museum and you see these paintings and you have to stand at it for a really long time before you get any type of like feeling for what the artist was come, was trying to say or portray in this feeling. But even then it's still on the outs, like on the cusp of something that you're not quite getting. And in a lot of ways that is, that is really cool. And that is art. That's really beautiful. But 
in storytelling, I don't care. Like <laughs> you only have a certain amount of time to just wrap somebody up in the story. Yeah. And as the the Miramax version found out, you can't do that with horrible songs. Oh, <laughs> yes. We shall talk about that. <laughs> it just goes into madness. There were some good things. Like, he basically trained a whole troop of animators to yeah. be, like, amazing. Mm-hmm. And he got some really legendary animators to 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 kind of come in and mentor uh, the animation team. Yeah, he got Art Babbitt and Ken Harris. And they were just, you know, they, they were truly masters. I think a lot of animation masters came out of the 30s and 40s. Ken Harris was kind of uh, Chuck Jones' right-hand man um, on the Looney Tunes and really understood animation. And they they saw what he was doing, and they wanted to be a part of it, and they wanted to contribute. And this was this was really helpful. I mean, he wasn't strapped for cash. They talk about how there's a period where he, money was just flowing in. And so he shut the studio down for an, for 30 days or for a month and had, I think it was Art Babbitt, had him teach... All the animators, just classes. I mean, and how cool is that? Like, he really understood that he wanted to improve the skills of his artists so they could achieve his vision. Um, And so we have to remember that. Like, he wasn't poor. Like, he wasn't just never had money. Like, the commercials that he were doing was always bringing in the money. And he had the talent. And I thought it was sort of interesting that there was one thing he said that um, he didn't want animators to come in who already had their own style or their own way and had been trained. He kind of yeah. wanted fresh meat that he could train, that he could mold into his way, which was a bit controlling. <laughs> uh, well, again, that's very ambitious. Like he wanted control over his film and he didn't want to be, he didn't want to waste time, like un- having his team unlearn everything so that they could catch the vision of the, of the film. And and you're right. It wasn't like he was the starving artist all his life and he struggled with it. Like, and a couple of times it said that they had like the best equipment around in their studio and that the studio was like a really legitimate, like awesome place to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's otherwise Roger Rabbit wouldn't have been nearly as cool. I mean, they it was not. really good. It's just direction. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Roger Rabbit was the first time that animation, you know, 2D animation had been done over a moving camera shot. You know, where the camera was panning. You know, when you see it in Mary Poppins, the camera's static. And yeah. then it's just animated right there. But this, the camera was panning. The characters were moving along with it. Really cool, really innovative stuff. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Still obnoxious. And then it, it, and then it just gets nuts. It seems like in the documentary when they interview people, like, starting to figure out, out like, how crazy everything was going. The lack of direction, the lack of story at the end. You know, there's the tale of the animator's wife. You know, the fact that he, like, rewrote the script or he, he had his, like, girl he was cheating on his wife with uh, oh. rewrite the script. <laughs> and it was just so it was just so sad. I mean, of course, all documentaries have to bring that stuff out. Um, his poor wife, too. Like, she was just this girl that just was always very patient, waiting for him, whatever, you know. He'd be like, okay, you know, wait a second. And it'd, she'd be like, okay. She sat down. Wait. She'd wait for, like, an hour and a half. Wait, yeah, wait 45 minutes, okay. <laughs> like, you got to be kidding. There's got to be balance in a life, people. Yeah, it reminds me of this article that Shanna showed me. It's a uh, lady calls herself an EA widow. Her husband got a job at EA, like Electronic Arts, the game company. Oh. And like I'm sure it's I'm sure it's the same with a lot of studios. 
And it's something that I'm kind of like worried about being a married man. I, I'm not, not worried, but <laughs> something that um, is kind of interesting is um, kind of the scheduling and like the life of an animator and how much time like it demands from you. Granted, we have like whole teams of animators and like developers like on stuff. And I guess the work isn't isn't laid on as thickly, but it still happens today. And it's kind of like one of these weird sociological things that it definitely like the Williamses definitely fell victim to that. It's discipline, people. Discipline. <laughs> discipline. Discipline was the thing. Well, it was it was sad because there were stories about these animators, how they were being put through so much. And one person's, his wife was sick in the hospital and he wasn't allowed to get any time off. He had to go visit her during her his lunch breaks. And it was really pathetic. Um, yeah. When deadlines came really tight and he just he became a dictator and it did not seem like a happy place to work. Like the people seemed excited to work there because of what was being done. But at the same time, it seemed kind of miserable. Yeah. There definitely was like a time when he was like firing people left and right, like on the doorstep. As soon as they'd be out the door, they would change the locks. Like he just like was not put up with anything. Yeah. That was at the end of his production of the thief, thief and the cobbler he was just getting so stressed out from his you know his own problems that he just was throwing everybody out but yeah like as morgan was saying I mean, you had ken harris who was like i said one of the legends he was in his 70s when he was working there he comes in one day and he shows this one scene of that he had worked on for a long time and he said you know that scene almost killed me and he was serious and he was in his 70s and it probably did. And then like, he would also talk about how Ken and Richard would go out and like just for a drink or something. And then Ken said, oh, yeah, Richard said once that I'm going to get a really big paycheck once this is done. And then, you know, a couple months later or so, he get, says, well, I guess I'm not going to get paid. And then he like died like soon thereafter. And it was just, I mean, mm. obviously he wasn't, Ken wasn't doing it for the money because he himself was wrapped up in this dream that Richard had thrown out there to create something really grand and fantastic. And so he wasn't doing it for the money, but still it hurts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this start, okay. So this started out as uh, an adaptation of like folk stories, right? Yeah. It says, Planning to do a film about Mula Nasruddin, a wise fool of Near Eastern folk- folklore. A wise fool. Hmm. You know, you don't get enough wise fools. <laughs> it was a series of books because the people, oh. the authors of the books and their families or something uh, got were going to initially get 50% of the profits that Williams was going to make. Mm-hmm. He did have sort of a management financial guy. But very early on, when this movie was more about Nasruddin and less about the, the thief and the cobbler, he started embezzling funds, and then they lost the rights to the, the books, but particularly that character. So they had to rework the film to take Nasruddin out, and then they focused more on just the thief and the cobbler. Yeah, they, they, had, to re, they had to change every character. They lost every character except for the thief. Yeah. And it shows, because like, his animation style is, is quite different from everyone else's. Like. <laughs> It's yes. kind of funny how like how much of an outsider he is. So like it's cool when you see that film, you see the thief. That is the only thing that is left. Well, it, it might not be the only thing. It was probably the only character that's left from the original project. Yeah, and he a lot of this film, particularly the thief, was in the UPA style of animation. And UPA was sort of this American animation studio. It was in 
40s through the 70s. They're very stylized looking, very simple. Um, yeah. I think of Mr. Magoo. I think of some of the Hanna-Barbera maybe had a little bit of, of UPA style. It was a very, very, very popular style, and it's very indicative of that time. And he yeah. looks the part. He really does. Oh, my goodness. And then and then after a while, it was like this big revelation. He like busts into the studio and was like, the thief, the cobbler, and the grand vizier. And then he riles you know, he rallies everyone up to like, okay, we're gonna change it, we're gonna have this, this, and this, and it, and then go, let's just go, you know. <laughs> Start animating, go. <laughs> <laughs> and then it just uh and then it was um it was like the princess and the cobbler, I think when it was finally released by the other company, but but before that, like I think before that they had a bunch of sequences done. You know, they worked and worked for like 20 years and they got picked up by Warner Brothers, right? Yeah. After Roger Rabbit came out and he won the Oscar, um, people started paying attention to him and then he got funded by Warner Brothers. And there, there were some Japanese investors. There, he had a few investors, but Warner Brothers was the main one. So he was yeah. able to get $25 million in investment for production and then another promise, $25 million in promotions. So, I mean, there's $50 million that Warner, that Warner Brothers has now put into this thing. So yeah. obviously they're wanting their money back. Totally. Yeah, and I and I don't think it was a good move to like not do storyboarding for the rest of your film when there's like a major uh, company looking at you, you know, and putting their hopes in you. Um, okay, so when it comes to the storyboards, there were they talk about how after they got funded, Warner Brothers wanted to see basically where it was and the storyboards of it, and he didn't have any, so he had to put them together. And when I was watching the recobbled cut of this, I mean, those storyboards are super intricate. Like, even then, when he, most storyboards are just sort of, they show the, maybe the expression, the line, the shape. It just gives you a general idea. But his, they were shaded, they were colored, they were perfectly done. And I'm just like, ah, you still don't learn. Yeah. It's just a storyboard. It doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah, the guy needed some major pipeline lessons. And I don't want to insult anyone who, like, idolizes Williams. Like, obviously, he's a genius. But, like... He he really didn't have that down at that time, you know. Maybe well, he's learned his lesson now. And then, okay, so he gets this funding, and this is probably in 88. That's when um, Roger Rabbit came out. So around 88, 89, he got funding. And then, you know, there, there of course, are rumors of this Aladdin movie had to have been, um, you know, circulating in the animation world. To me, this movie feels very 80s overall yeah like it needed to be released in the 80s it needed to be released before aladdin if anything like do everything you can to beat aladdin and if anything i mean i don't think he could have foresaw this but it really belonged in the 80s before the disney renaissance when broadway musicals became the norm Um, yeah i would i would even say the 70s totally yeah yeah it just i even if he was able to you know finish this out complete through production and release it in the 90s there was no way that it could have been a hit because audience preferences had changed so much. I just don't see it succeeding. Now, the the documentary made it seem like Aladdin was stealing elements from The Thief and the Cobbler. Do you guys believe it was that black and white? Well, I know a lot of Disney that artists pretty were working close. for him. <laughs> A lot of Disney mm-hmm. artists were working for him um, on Roger Rabbit. I know James Baxter was there and a few others. But I, I have a I don't know. I, I do agree that the Grand Vizier and Jafar look very similar. 
yeah, and there are I elements guess. of the plot that that seem similar, but at the same time, if you watch both movies, yes, they're set in a similar setting, and there are a few elements that line up. Um, but I don't see them as being a complete knockoff or ripoff. Yeah, but yeah, because of its release date and because you know no one realized that this film started in the '60s and Aladdin started in the '80s, mm-hmm. late '80s, it, it kind of doomed itself. Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. you know because of the release date. And you know what? I don't see any merchandise for The Thief and the Cobbler. <laughs> There's a few, like, Cafe Press t-shirts out there, and I don't know about toys or anything, but, like, I kind of want, like, a Thief and the Cobbler t-shirt. Maybe I'll just make my own. <laughs> eBay. But, uh, e- I looked on eBay. There's you nothing. Did? Oh, lame. You animator. Um, hey, well, how cool would it be, is, like, what is the... walking around SIGGRAPH with, like, a Thief and the Cobbler shirt? You know, how That'd many people would be like, oh, that's awesome! Well, yeah. that's the thing, is that this movie, within the animation circle, had such a, not a cult following, but it was very well known. Everyone knew what Williams was doing. People wanted to be a part of it. They And people had been in and out of the studio seeing what they were doing. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised that people sort of saw elements of this grand movie that was being made and, and then copied in a way i mean there's no proof and I, I i am on the fence about whether it was people completely ripped off and said eh sure whatever the aladdin deal was it eventually got down to the lowest of lowest points the um oh what's it called the, the commercial well the, the is that was the worst for me well the, that and then they had to bring in the completion bond company oh, oh. Now, in the U.S., there is an actual U.S. completion bond company, and if you go on IMDb and search for them, they actually have a little page that shows um, all of the filmography for this company. And so the credits that go out to them are like, there's a bunch of completion guarantee provided by, you know, completion guarantee. And that's kind of a financial thing where you're like, it's kind of an insurance thing Yeah. where... In case you can't finish your movie, there is a company that will come in and finish it for you. Yeah, Um, on the cheap. (laughs) On the cheap. And so you got things called uh, the 1993's The House of the Spirits, uh, (laughs) Cyborg 2. Um, uh, Tom and Jerry the movie um, was not completed by a completion bond company, but it had a a guarantee. Um, If you scroll down to 1993... um, the Princess and the Cobbler, uh, the credit is a special thanks oh, to oh, the Completion oh. Bond Company. Uh. Now, and it's just so sad because it's like, I I can imagine the, the rage and the frustration that Williams and his crew had to know that their their child basically was being taken away from them by this company that just did not have the film's vision in mind. They just wanted to get it get it completed, finished, out there for audiences, and, um, you know, they threw in some some extra stuff. They, they totally changed up some characters. Yeah. And, as... to me, and to me, that's the saddest part of this film, was that another company had to swoop in, take it away from Williams, and complete it. Yeah, as an animator it... or a studio, this is the company that you, do n- you never want to see in your lifetime or during your production. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. And, like, during the documentary, there's this scene of, okay, they animators are told they have to go on vacation, they have to be gone for a month, you know, they come back, and the studio is stripped of everything, of yeah. all the, you know, the, the draftman tables, of, of all the software, well, not software, but of 
all the art, art supplies, even all the stills are gone, all the cells. And then they come back and then they have a wrap party. And this broke my heart. How yeah. horrible, horrible, horrible to after working on something, maybe you've been there 10 years, 20, whatever. And then you have this anticlimactic wrap party where you have nothing to wrap. It's gone. It's hey, stolen we're not, from we're not you. Talking about a, we're not talking about a wrap party like, yo, yo. <laughs> they, did, they didn't have anything to wrap with. No. No, no beats, no lyrics, nothing. Well, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Do you see, and you see Williams in that, like someone had like a home video camera that they were, yeah, <laughs> they were doing and he looks, he's, tr- you can tell he's trying to put on a happy face. Yeah. But he had to have been absolutely devastated inside. Like I'm surprised he was even there. And oh, and one thing we didn't really talk about is ever since this movie was released and taken from him, he has refused to talk about it. To yeah, anyone, yeah. anyone publicly, he won't talk about it. And so that's why they asked if he could be in this documentary, and he refused. To me, this is something that he just completely has wanted to suppress. I mean, this was his dream, his baby. I mean, literally, like, one of his children were killed. And I I can't imagine what sort of despair or depression he went in. And it's no wonder he doesn't want to talk about it. But still, it would have been nice to have had some new footage to get his idea. Because all the footage in the film is from a most of it's from a 1980 documentary where he's so gung-ho and he's so happy and has all this passion and enthusiasm. And it's really great because we get to see his side and his just like manic artistry. Um, But at the same time, I mean, we don't see the after effects and how it affected him. Yeah, that is true. And it could be because he's never really let it go or it could be because he's moving on. I mean, apparently there are rumors that he's working on a super secret project, (laughs) you know, but he's in his eighties, right? Yes. Maybe this is what he's been working on the next the last twenty years. It's funny because there's an article that talk where he briefly mentions that he's working on a super secret project and he needs about five or six assistants to finish it. And I'm like, right, we've heard that one before. It's a trap. But then if you read the comments on that article, there's so many people who are like, "Ooh, me, 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 me! I want to do this. I love it. I'll do it for free." <laughs> yeah, right. So, <laughs> I mean, there are people who want to help him if he really wanted to, but. The thing is, like, even if it were just to work with him and to learn from him, like, totally. that is amazing. That's almost invaluable. Like, you wouldn't, because he, he did have, he does have a master at the the technical side of animation. Well, I see a lot of similarities between Richard Williams, Don Bluth, the directors who did Black Cauldron. Sometimes in animation, if you have something that fails or bombs, that's literally the end of your career. And there's no coming back from it. Yeah, some people are able to come back. um, But for the most part, you never hear anything of these guys again. And they have to go on. And the same thing with him. This was the last thing he did up until two years ago. He put out um, a short. But it's really, really sad. I think it's because, like, for an artist, it's very emotional. And, like, you don't have as much logic driven in in your makeup, I guess you could say. But it's very emotional. Every bit of your work is your heart. And so for something like that, it's it's hard to come back from that if you're not used to just kind of just, I don't know, taking the the logical side of it and just not caring, I guess. And so I think that might be a, a reason why some of these guys never totally come back. I don't know. What mm-hmm. do you guys think? Well, I think one thing, the studios don't give them a chance anymore. But true. then other than that, I mean, they, they probably do have lost confidence, but he seems really resilient yeah. in a way. 
just based on that comment that he's working on this super secret thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's funny. So in the end, uh, really good documentary. It really like kind of pulls together a good kind of crash course narrative as to the development of the film. And uh, I really appreciated getting a sneak peek. And it's just a super sad story. Like it's really touching at the end how it's just like, and that's it. They made, a, you know, Miramax came in released a horrible version of what was supposed to be the greatest animated film of all time. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Watching these things, I actually kind of like watching a documentary or a biography or anything like that. I always, I always end up asking myself like, okay, I, I can see their problems. I can see their weaknesses. And then I always think, Am I doing any of those? Am I? Do I have any of those weaknesses too? And it, it, but it is kind of like a, a self reflection like process, I guess you could say. It's like where can I improve to not end up really bad off? Like <laughs> it's I guess like in watching these things for me, I take that good for my own sake and you know applying it in any point in my life. Yeah, yeah. And so this kind of like leads us into our discussion on the thief in the cobbler but any any last thoughts on the documentary if anyone gets the chance to see the documentary i really recommend it because it puts a lot of things into perspective and yes you can read about a lot of this but just seeing the footage and the way it's told really makes a lot more real and it, it puts you on william's side but at the same time very um objectively you see the other side of the coin and you're like well i mean i can't it's no wonder this happened you know, it really is just a modern day tragedy. Yeah, it really is. It's like someone had like this big, beautiful sh- wooden ship from colonial times and they were going to restore it out in the desert, but it just was left to rot out in the desert. Kind of. <laughs> That's kind of my poetic analogy. For <laughs> I see. Now, um, I watched the Netflix slash Miramax release and then I watched a documentary and then I watched, I guess it's called, yeah, I guess it'd be the recobbled version. Some guy put a link on YouTube, which I was grateful for. And so in our in our following discussion of The Thief and the Cobbler, uh, I'll make reference to both versions. The uncut, recobbled version is like a must-see. Like, it's so much better than Miramax version in, like, almost every way. When you watch the documentary, folks, the recobbled version has scenes that the documentary mentions that aren't in the Netflix version. So it's, like, cooler. Totally. Yeah, I watched the Netflix version first. And then I went in and watched the recobbled edition, and then I watched the documentary. So it's like each part of my mind was just like at first I was like, "All right, this movie is ouch." <laughs> like the the script was kind of funny. On the one hand, they tried to take kind of a contemporary role and put in some humor. Like they added voices to the thief and to the oh cobbler, which weren't in in any of the original cuts like the original cut they were both of them were mute and it was kind of it took a lot of a the charlie chaplin silent film type way of storytelling which i really liked but at first i was like oh you know you got vincent price and matthew broderick as the main voices like i thought it was really cool but only because i knew that it was them as i as they started talking but i just felt like it was very poorly casted and it didn't add anything at all and i just no. felt like the dialogue was really bad the voices yeah i mean i watched the um miramax version first and the voices were just just jokes to me like i didn't feel yeah like they were, like chelsea said they were trying to make it a bit more contemporary the thief with his weird 
I don't know, this very obscure voice, and he makes these stupid references, and some of them are more, you know, pop, not pop culture, but more modern, you know, like, oh, it smells like a, smells like a college dorm room in here, or whatever yeah. he said. Just, <laughs> it, it, uh, it just ruined anything. I, and, and you, you know, you go to the beginning of, you know, the original edit, um, the recobbled version, and it, the beginning flows very quickly, comparatively and it's it's good like you don't need yeah. any voices at all i was sitting there and i i actually enjoyed myself even though i'd already sort of been tainted by this other version but i immediately was more at ease with what i was watching yeah the recobbled version was quite a relief because they took out the lines from the thief and the cobbler but the beginning of the miramax version is just so weird you know like it's like space and then <laughs> sim and then simba starts talking you know <laughs> They say the great kings of the past look down upon us. Uh, that's what I expected him to say. I, I'm like, I don't know, Simba. I always thought they were great big balls of gas. I just wanted to start yelling at my at my TV by then. I don't know. It's just so so lame and and like um, I don't know. It's just like Matthew Broderick. Like I know this was pre Lion King, but like Matthew Broderick was totally unnecessary, and he doesn't even. Work. The only thing that they got going for him was that the last line that the thief says is better in Matthew Broderick's voice than the guy they had in the original. <laughs> do, you, do you know who they had in the original? Oh, that was Sean Connery. Sean Connery. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you can't put Sean Connery's voice to the thief. Like, it picture, just does not match up this, like, at long, all. spindly, youthful guy. It's just like, I love you, my cobbler. And then, I love you too, money penny. <laughs> Stirred, not shaken. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, okay. I, I know why they did that is because the cobbler, they they probably, um, that was probably left over from Sean Connery doing voices for Narsudeen or Narduseen, who was an older character, you know. I want to say it was that. But my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, okay, and then um, the, the princess gets introduced and yeah immediately in the miramax version she bursts into song because whatever she's thinking or feeling we learn she must sing about it and it's it's a horrible horrible song and immediately the animation switches Mm -hmm. like her design like i loved watching her in the original version because she would stand there and she had these pants and they were kind of like just slight flow to them you know, yeah. her figure was perfectly proportioned. But then in this scene, uh, like, she had the squattiest waist and, like, huge boobs. And it didn't, it, it was not good. It was scary no. animation, you know, which. They, it was scary. It was. It was not good. It, well, it really she, was. She Watching was, the Miramax version, I really don't complain. I really can't complain that much about the sexualization of Disney heroines. <laughs> because, my gosh. And she's even, um,. You know, she's even shallower in the original version, version like her voice and stuff. But uh-huh. at least, at least they gave her a little more style and a little more dignity in the in the in the recobbled version. Well, in yes, in the Miramax version, what bothered me is that she kept trying to like justify her love for the cobbler. She right. kept trying to say like, "I have no, I don't, I have no idea why I'm in love with him, but there's just something about him." And it's in the other version. I mean, you can tell that she's kind of attracted to him. She's interested in him, but like the looks stand for themselves. You don't need anything more than that. You can tell 
that, okay, there's something between these two. And it's just sort of tacky and cheap when she's like, oh, yeah, there's something about him. Like, oh, come on. And everybody's like, oh, my gosh, who the heck cares? Yeah. Her lines are just so bad. Like, they just talk about, oh, he doesn't let me do anything. Like he, That's why it looks like a total remake of Aladdin is because in the Miramax version, it totally is. Like they, yeah, it's true. They take that and they're just, they run with it. Oh, they never let me outside the palace walls type thing. Like in a much worse way. But she's, she's rather empowered in the other, you know. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. She takes charge. You know, she does this kind of. She's not a, a dam. She's a damsel in distress in some parts, but she's not completely weak and helpless. I, in the recolor version, I, I love how she like storms into Zigzag's uh, fortress and she just goes, "Get away, bird of evil!" Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> to, to Fido. I was like, "That's really cheesy. That's really funny." <laughs> but like, my gosh, the songs that they put these poor characters through. <laughs> Like, okay, what is it? The one where she's like, so this pretty miss is so much more. I'm like, <laughs> it was bad. Oh, I mean, I, I did get a chuckle out of this is what happens when you don't finish school. But I, just, I guess just a chuckle. And it was like, I'm, I'm done. Like the just it was just bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that was definitely that was a public service announcement under the guise of a song. Right. Well, oh, those songs. School's important, but but man, the, the, the songs in this movie were just so lame. No, yeah, they. Uh, there's the princess; would, she would, sings two songs, and then those barbarians sing a song. It's just dorky. It's pathetic. So dorky, and then the animation just turns into this horrible <laughs> quality. Oh, it's really bad. And that was the thing. Like, I watched the Miramax version first, and I was just... I was almost appalled at some of the animation because I felt like there's just so much going on and it just, it doesn't look good and doesn't match. And, you know, but then the moment I turned into the recobbled version, I was like, oh, the animation, like, adds. It, it <laughs> actually looks good. And yeah. it's it's something to be watched. Yeah. 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 Bad. Now I do love I do love her handmaiden. <laughs> this like old lady with like huge brawny arms and she's like always shaking and mumbling to herself. Yeah. She reminds me of the uh, old uh, turtle master that dies in the end, at the beginning of Kung Fu Panda. Oh yeah. Oh. That guy, how he's just like shaking and like gumming, you know, me. And uh, I really like it. Yeah, we already talked about the thief, but like genius character design totally ruined by Jonathan Winters and all of his horrible lines. Like the guy's mouth doesn't even move. Now I, I understand <laughs> that his the Miramax lines dialogue was kind of like in his head kind of thing, like getting into the thief's head and like all his how he just thinks. But like you don't need to know what he thinks because you can read it in his body language, but yeah. the horrible dialogue distracts from it. Yes. Really bad. Like I could write a uh, a book slash make a lifetime TV movie about how much I hate uh, Jonathan <laughs> Winter's involvement in in this film. Because if you really get past the dialogue and just shut him up, he's a hilarious character. Like yes. he's funnier without the lines. Yeah, I agree. Just just his body language, like how he slinks around. He doesn't seem to have like a real vertebrae. Never really stands straight up, and uh, he reminded me of Buster Keaton, like very deadpan. He's clever with what he has, even though he doesn't have that much. You know, in the recall version, I love how he gets out of the penalty for stealing, you know? 
Oh my gosh, his hands that chopped was off, awesome. But it, it, he gets his hands chopped off, but it was actually the back scratcher that he stole from, yes, that's right. <laughs> from Yum Yum, you know? And uh, Yum Yum, I can't even say that without it with a straight face. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the thief's genius is totally obliterated by what Miramax did to him. I don't know. In both versions, I didn't love the thief as much. Be just because, especially in the Miramax version, they sort of just like switch to him very erratically. Yeah. Um, and he progresses the plot, and it's, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about the thief. I'm not the biggest fan. He is really good in the original version, though. Yeah, yeah. And I think that what goes along with the vision Williams had for the film was that it was just a series of vignettes and not like a, not like a super cohesive, immersive plot, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I hate it when 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 like movies and like games brag about having an immersive storyline, like an immersive atmosphere. And I'm like, okay, whatever. That's just kind of a contrived word these days. But uh, but yeah, the thief was cool. But let's talk about a let's talk about a character that didn't change that much during uh, the two versions, and that's Zigzag, voiced by the one and only Vincent Price, <laughs> who I freaking love seriously as i was watching that the only thing i really could think though is rat again totally like i like that's all <laughs> i could come up with is it's rat again sewer rat um apparently this was the last uh time vincent price would would voice in a movie maybe well he probably I, recorded I, it early 70s but this was yeah, his so, last film released okay that's a good yeah that's a good way to put it you know, he's no Jafar, but I can see the similarities, like how he kind of looks like him, uh, complete with bird companion. <laughs> I think Miramax tried to make Fido like Iago. Like, hey, this guy uh, Jafar uh, for Disney, he has a, a talking parrot who's like really hilarious. So uh, let's let's see what we can do with Fido. But they completely ruined him. Uh-huh. Um, this guy still rocks my world. I really don't see that many similarities between him and Jafar. Um, one is the character design. I love his grand entrance. Oh my god, like, that was you, so cool. You, when you see him make his big entrance and how he walks and stuff, you're just like, okay, this guy is so weird, and I'm very <laughs> interested in him. Um, the Grand Vizier like, is here. The Grand Vizier, the grand is, here. vizier is here. Um, and I, I, do you notice that his feet make a zigzag with each step he yeah. makes in his grand entrance, and then his, like, his shoes... Feet. His shoes stretch out and then they curl back up. Yes, like it's so intricate. The animation, the the carpet moving was all oh, hilarious. Was... <laughs> he's not a, he's not a super deep character, but at the same time, he's kind of like a Joker, like Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker in Dark Knight. Like he's just like so weird that you just want to watch him. <laughs> you know, he speaks in rhyme all the time. He's so weird. Like, I didn't even know he had extra fingers until I watched the documentary. <laughs> I mean, the guy's just crazy weird. I love uh, during the polo match when uh, Yum Yum is just disgusted with him. And uh, in the recall version, he just he just flips his beard out at her. <laughs> and she's just like, oh, like throws something yeah. at him. He's like, he's like, Wah! you know, it's just like <laughs> loves how gross he is. <laughs> and then when he's trying to win over uh, the master one eye. And the card trick scene, thankfully, was in both scenes. It's just like... That was a really good scene. I really think it's one of the greatest animated scenes ever. Because ha- every card was hand-painted. Every card was hand-animated. And then it's just funny, because he's like, I, too, control the decks. He grabs that last one. And then he grabs the last one, you know? So it's, like, so funny. I don't know what it is about that guy, but it's just, like, so, like... 
Such a creepy, like, funny guy. No, it was good. Good job, everyone, on ZigZag. <laughs> you don't see a lot of Miramax scenes with him, you know? They cut out a lot of him. Well, yeah, I mean, the version that we watched, was the recobbled version, was 130 minutes or so long, and they still, um, I guess, had 15 to 10, 10 to 15 minutes left to animate. Um, yeah. Which makes you so sad. It's like, oh, you guys were so close. Yeah. But then the Miramax version is like 72 minutes. <laughs> yeah. They cut yeah. a lot. They did cut a lot. But one thing they didn't cut that you can see in both versions is, um, like, I'm not talking about animation. I'm talking about, like, the style of art that they went with mm-hmm. is just, it just blew me away. Did y'all see in the documentary when they unfurl that huge layout of oh Baghdad? Oh, my gosh. Awesome. And he was like, yeah, uh, we got this gigantic drawing and we got to figure out how to animate it somehow. I'm like, okay, (laughs) okay. Now that's where you see a lot of cameras panning across the layouts. But at the same time, you also see them literally draw the city in 3D, like revolving around and like going, zooming in and out. Like, you know, the parts where the king is like, my kingdom will be lost. And he like screams and it zooms out of him. Zooms out of the palace, zooms out. Like, that's not a camera going through that. That's, that's literally them drawing the city shrinking out of view in the distance. See, yeah. that's incredible. That's one thing that there are so many scenes. None of this was done by computers. But it, you there, almost... there was There was one scene that was done by computer. Which was that? Was the that... gutter. The gutter? The gutter when he's, like, climbing up the gutter. And oh, climbing the, oh the yeah. Star... Oh, okay, okay. When he's clanking through that, I'm almost positive that it, that was a CG gutter. Because in in because by the time they got to that scene, I'm sure they could do like some like computer manipulation. Well, that one scene but, where they're going up the staircase. Oh my god! I'm like, uh-huh. are you kidding me? It totally looks like it should have been done by a computer, and I would have been yeah. fine with them doing it by a computer. But the fact that that was done by hand is incredible. That whole chase scene. That whole chase scene, like the MC Escher kind of effects where they're wa- running down the hallway. Yes. And then it just turns out that that was a low level and that was a high level. Yeah. And then all that stuff with like playing with perspective and depth and like how it can look flat, but it's actually has depth. And like it's or so weird. That, that one scene where it looked kind of rounded too, like the the ground just it looked like it was well, they definitely play with play with perspective, or should I say, distort the perspective a lot in this film. But I yeah. think it kind of goes with that kind of um, art style, mimicking like Arabic tapestries and stuff like yeah. that. Very geometric, very angular, lots of contrast. And so the art style in this movie is like super epic. Like I really thought it was cool. I agree. I loved it. I really, I really liked all that stuff. And then the the, the roses. <laughs> like someone okay it's hard enough to draw a rose accurately but someone drew it revolving in 3d but they hand drew it like yeah. you can see the flaws but no one like very few people i think could get close to that these days without yeah. resorting to uh 3d animation like i think i think learning how to hand draw like at least do a little bit of hand drawn animation like kind of teaches the animator patience you know but like- my gosh yeah, that that scene was one of the ones that was in both versions. It was so striking the difference in the Miramax version because you would have scenes like that, and then you would have the you know other scenes like musical scenes, and you're just horrible like, scenes. I don't get it. What's the Hor- difference? <laughs> horrible dialogue between Tack and the princess? Yeah, 
You know, it's like, okay, we can figure out your name is Tack without you talking. Yeah. By, by the way, I love how his, um, the nails in his mouth that he holds in his mouth are like, are, are literally his mouth. Yeah. Like yeah. He when he's like concentrating or sad or happy, you know, like that stuff's genius. You don't need the dialogue for that when you have that stuff. Huh, Miramax doesn't know that. <laughs> yeah, they really don't. Um, the recall version was a, a little sexually inappropriate. Uh, mature, I guess. This wasn't, yeah. yeah, it wasn't for kids. Yeah, Zigzag brings in like a slave woman from Mombasa. And then uh, some extended scenes of, of Yum Yum bathing. It's kind of, okay, uh, yeah. PG-13. Um, <laughs> but, the, but Miramax also, and I can understand why Miramax cut that out, but they also cut out stuff that was like completely, like there's a scene where Tack is in prison and in the Miramax version, it's just Simba saying, you know, well, while I was sitting in my cell feeding my rats, oh. it's just like, that's so flat. In the Recobble version, you see him, you know, sitting down and he grabs a piece of bread and he starts feeding the white mouse. And then his, his the black mouse friends, you know, come out and they, uh, and they, they steal the bread and then he separates them and kind of goes back to feeding the white mouse. And so it's, you know, and it's just kind of, uh, talks about the compassion that Tack had. That mm-hmm. was kind of cut out from the Miramax version. Yeah. Miramax version is just kind of like a dude that's just kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. And if it weren't for his like lovable appearance, you'd think he was just like a punk. Street rat. You know? I don't buy that. If yeah. only they'd look closer. Yeah. And so you kind of go into this whole like, and you know, throw him in prison. And then the, uh, the thief like kind of wants to steal the golden balls on top of the minaret. I love it. What what freak of nature could reach the top of the minaret? <laughs> <laughs> well, there is one freak of nature that can. I guess I was going to mention this later, but like what Miramax did was they kind of dug their own hole and kind of made this film into a knockoff of Aladdin. Oh, yeah. Didn't ha- didn't have to be. No, it didn't. But they but I think they they panicked or they freaked out or they were just trying to ride the ride the fame of Aladdin and they with the dialogue and with the, you know, some thrown in elements like the songs, they created their own image as an Aladdin knockoff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sad. It was almost like they were just mad about it, too. Like, it was almost like vindictive in the in the way that they did it. Because, I mean, like I was talking about earlier, like, they would give away all these films as, like, Fruit Loops prizes. And just, yeah, yeah. like, all of these different things. And they put that thumbnail on top of it. It's just, like, makes it look so bad. And, like, it's almost like they want this to fail horribly and miserably just to, like, not pay anybody for what they got from it. Well, I think Warner Brothers slash Mary Max didn't have much faith in the film. Obviously. But it was almost like... Like, well, we have to do this. Well, you know, sucks to be us. Let's just make it as, make fun of it. The fact that we, we did this. It yeah. was just sad. Yeah. But so anyway, um, and then the plot kind of go, the, the big deal with the plot is that the, you know, the, the, the sacred balls are, uh, are protecting the kingdom. <laughs> and, uh, I love the, I love the more of this film. You need balls. Oh no. <laughs> Like, the whole time I was thinking that, I was like, ugh, can they not call it orbs? <laughs> this, 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 this success thing, it takes balls. Anyway, um, uh, so they, they end up in the desert because, uh, the, the thief steals the balls and he loses them. And then Zigzag singing a, singing a chance for opportunity gets his, like, really strange high priest guys to, 
to go. Did you see that one hyper, that one like henchman who's got like a nose that just defies the laws of physics. Yes. <laughs> so they steal him, and he's like, "Well, if uh, oh, I I do like how the how the king in, in this one is a little bit wiser than a little less naive than the Sultan." You know, Zigzag is like, if you want the golden balls back, you just let me marry your daughter. And basically the king's like, what the F did you just say? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay, I don't know if you've seen Yum Yum, but she's she's way out of your league, pal. You, you're never going to marry her. Guards, you know. I don't need you, Zigzag. It, 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 plus, plus you, you are a practitioner of black magic. I will not have that. You know, yet um, you are my royal vizier, which I yeah, you are my <laughs> royal vizier. Um, <laughs> I just like how he's just kind of like get out of here. Um, <laughs> I do love how in the scenes where he realizes the balls are missing, like the king just gets like from the dream he has to the the balls missing, he just gets like progressively more hysterical. <laughs> and so this is important. In the Miramax version, the king is like, "Who can I send? If I had a son, I would send him." And then the daughter's like, I'll go. And he's like, no, it's such a conflict for me. But uh, yeah, here you go. You, you, have to, you have to be there when the ruby shines on the door. And yeah, yeah get out of here. In the <laughs> recobbled version, he kind of takes charge and is like, all right, no one else can do this because I have to defend the, the city. Uh, Princess, you go. And she's like, uh, okay, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they, uh, they kind of go off in the desert. And, um, you know, Yum Yum kind of takes charge. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they meet the freaking brigands, man. <laughs> One of the best part of the film, like, I just freaking love these guys. Uh, basically, really bo- bored, out-of-work troll mercenaries take out their horrible public service announcement turned to song song. They're just like the most grotesque and awkward creatures I love how they're like, yeah, things ain't what they used to be, you know. Oh, back in the day, yep, yep. They're like, oh, what do we do with the caravan? Ah. And you're like, oh, okay, they're just going to charge out there. And they're like, no, they have like a twinge of dignity left. They're like, oh, we must consult the book. Oh, the book. Here's the book. <laughs> the words. You know, what do we do with the caravan? We charge, you know. And I love how they just rush out there and they, I don't know if they all trip on the rock or if they all hi- try to hide it behind it lo- the rock it looks like they're trying to hide behind the rock halt you know i just love it i love how the princess handles the situation yeah she's very diplomatic she's just like um yeah you guys are probably gonna kill us but hey you can- since you were guards now you can guard the royal princess and me and they're like awesome by order of the princess <laughs> There's a part in the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's like, if you have an enemy, ask them to help you do something. And then they start to like you more because they're now you've now put them on your side. And so I was like, oh, the princess read How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> yeah, good deal. Yeah, so big filthy brigands, um, they they look scary and they look like they're out to, to kill and maim and, and, and pillage. Uh, and then they kind of are kind of cowards. I mean, they're kind of only useful for carrying uh, Tack and, and the princess around. Yeah. Um, I do love the scene where they're sleeping at night and the thief is stealing a bunch of stuff. I love how they just have, like, precious items laying around in the sand <laughs> for the thief to steal. And <laughs> that camel is so hilarious. Oh, yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> 
I definitely thought that the whole like getting into like the desert colossus with the idol and like the secret doors, very uh, very Gerudo Valley, like very Zelda. <laughs> totally. You know, I love it. I love the sign. No prayers beyond this point. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a tourist attraction just out in the middle of the desert. Like I thought that was kind of funny. Every language saying like what was it saying? It wasn't saying welcome. It's like here it is this way to the ruby. Yeah. It was saying, like, no prayers beyond this point. Um, this is your desert. Keep it clean. <laughs> <laughs> very funny. It's very Looney Tunes, you know? Yeah. And so there's a deal, you know, in the in the recallable version, there's, like, this old hag that they put in. She's very out of place in the recallable version. I'm, I'm, I really don't have a problem with them cutting her. And, you know, she consults the muses, and they have to... She gives them this prophecy, you know, attack, attack, attack! And, um... And it, which which is kind of crazy because they're up against the, this crazy warlord, evil master One Eye, <laughs> who, if you look at him, he's basically a medieval emperor Zerg. <laughs> the I mean, the purple, the red, and the yellow, and just how is how he. There you go. Um, anyway, <laughs> this true. guy know, this guy know has knows how to be a warlord. He has a shape shifting throne of large, curvaceous Gothic women. It's oh true. I saw. I was like, what? I love it when he was like throne and they just turn into a throne for him <laughs> and like he's got this uh gigantic war machine basically that's the only thing i can describe it it's like this giant like thing that's powered by his troops that's like really could have been animated in 3d but of course it was hand-drawn because it's richard williams and um everything from the battle scene to the ending is just this amazing feat of animation yeah, really is. He's basically got this like Death Star kind of thing going. Um, I do love like when Zigzag's trying to win him over. He has like, I am Zigzag, the sorcerer. It's, like doves fly out, and then <laughs> this big banner comes up. You oh, know, yeah. it's like, oh yeah, very good on presentation. You know, <laughs> um, I like how he basically promises him the golden balls, and then one eye, he's just like, oh, you say you got power over beasts. I was like, oh, that's all you care about, dude. <laughs> Did weird. you not listen to what he just said? <laughs> but yeah, big big battle scene. Like I'm sure he wanted this to turn into this like big like Lawrence of Arabia style battle. Well, yeah, this this scene was really long. In, yeah, you know, much longer than in the Miramax version. Um, and this is probably one of the original things animated. I mean, he just ha- had these ideas and just went to animate the coolest parts of the movie first, right? Yeah. The most complicated, the ones that are going to take forever. Yeah, that's kind of a thing, like, in the animation world, it's kind of like a, a saying where, like, the first 99% of your animation will take 1% of your time, and then the other 99% of your time will be spent finishing that last 1%. <laughs> yeah. And that's definitely what happened with this film. And uh, the little tack just sets off a chain of events that triggers like one of the most like colossal complicated animated sequences i've ever seen <laughs> since it was hand drawn mostly follows the thief around kind of like bumbling about while this giant war machine is like collapsing and being destroyed around him it's yeah. just amazing like I, I was speechless watching it as i'm thinking about it like had they been able if they were to be able to finish this about five six years earlier and put it out as they had it done the fact that they went in and did so much with this would have made it pretty amazing and it would have garnered a following no it, kidding. it does have a following yeah, it does yeah but like, it, it has a cult following as is but i mean yeah. i don't think it would have been as cult as you say i just think it would have been a bit more of a mainstream following yeah 
yeah, the whole world would have seen how amazing this film was if it had been finished with Williams' original vision in mind, and uh, it really would have changed animation uh, forever. Um, That's sad. <laughs> that is sad. <laughs> it's no, just because sad. He could have been. I mean, was this in the documentary? They say Richard Williams. Like, if, I think if this would have succeeded, he would have gone on to produce more feature films, sort of like Don Bluth, who kind of became his own studio to rival Disney. Right. Yeah. I really think, but then again, I'm like, based on how big of a perfectionist is he is, he wouldn't have wanted to pop out movies every three to four years. No. That's very true. So, I mean, even if this did succeed, I don't see him having a legacy today. Well, I mean, he has a legacy, but, you know, just like a, a filmography of animated films. No, it, yeah. I'm not sure he would have been in our tagline. I mean, at least Don Bluth gets an actual name. He's just everything in between. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> I know. Now, the ending is is okay. Like, I like how Tax, like, okay, he gets all tan and he gets all tall and handsome, <laughs> you know, Louise. at the end. <laughs> I know. But even in the, even in the, um, recobbled version, that's, that's kind of. Yeah, I didn't the understand the tanning booth. Like, how he suddenly got dark. It just, I don't know. Well, maybe... it's because he was so pale, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's like one of the life. frequently asked questions of this film. In the recall version, they don't say how long they were in the desert. In, in the Miramax version, you know, Simba's like, oh, three days we went out with again. It was always fun with the thief behind us. Ugh. You know, whatever. <laughs> life goes pretty fast. And if you don't stop and, and look around for a while, you might miss it. Uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, the ending was, was okay. I like, you know, tax like a man. And then in one, one scene, he's like a white mage, you know, here are the balls, you know? So he's like, Oh, you went through wizarding school. Uh, <laughs> first he became the, the prince, you know? And then he, of course he marries yum, yum, you know, I love you. I love you too. <laughs> you know? Uh, and, uh, I think the fact that he didn't talk, it emphasized the importance of the last, those last words that he says in the film, but, um, get a different voice actor. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it was cheesy. Like in the Miramax version, it was super cheesy. I love you. I love you too. You know, whatever. And then in the other version, it's still kind of cheesy. The fact that they have to like last words are "I love you," but yeah, it, it like finishes this gag of we've never been able to hear him talk before. Yeah, <laughs> and then Sean Connery. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then the thief steals everything. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Oh, you know, cute. and that's another thing that sort of seemed like a ripoff of Aladdin is that um, at the very end of Aladdin, he's like, hey, major look, and he lifts up the film because you, you're showing that, oh, this is actually a film. But, like, this, that wasn't added in to copy Aladdin. That was actually in there before. Yeah. Which kind of makes me yeah. think that Aladdin did copy that gag. But Probably. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, in the end, the recall version was definitely more satisfying. I was actually glad to walk away from the Miramax version. But like, <laughs> I was definitely glad to walk away from that version, too. <laughs> it's just it's just so sad, you know, you know, on Netflix, unless people know, like, the importance of the film, like, it's just going to be like a bunch of parents who just want to entertain their kids, throw on Thief and the Cobbler. OK, we're done. You know, unless they're really watching, they'll never get to appreciate the groundbreaking and incredible animation that's, you know, parts of it that are left in the Miramax version. Yeah. This is a definitely, like, this This whole, like, Thief in the Collar experience needs to be studied by every every kid who's want, who wants to do animation. And to appreciate, because, like, there is a lot of stuff to appreciate in this film. 
in the end, it's this, this whole story is just so sad and tragic. On the one hand, you you can celebrate this, you know, the, the amazing quality that Williams put into this piece, but at the same time, it's just so tragic how he just couldn't bring it together, mm-hmm. and it got stolen away from him and, and turned into kind of an abomination. So, you, Mason, as an animator in training, what do you take away from this to take on to your career? <laughs> well, you can definitely learn some management skills or um, from from what Williams did and didn't do. Pre-planning. Um, it definitely humbled me because I realized that I really don't spend enough of my free time like in animation. Like I study it and I kind of immerse myself in it, but do I practice it enough? Like we talked about the whole 10,000 hours thing mm-hmm. and I really have a long way to go like talent wise, I think. But, um, and so it's kind of like a humbling thing. Like I wish I had the dedication and the motivation in the free time that um, Williams has and had. Um, at the same time, I don't want to fall into the uh, self-management traps that he fell into. Not that he was a total failure. I mean, he knew, how, he knew how to market himself, which is something that you definitely need to do in the industry. Because it's, it's an industry. Yeah. The bottom line is that, that the animation industry is an industry and you must be industrious. <laughs> You know, a guy once told me, you either work or you die. <laughs> and if you can't make what you're good at work for you, then, um, you know, you might have a pretty mundane working life, you know. And, and there are factors that go into that. But So as an animator, I would set the goal to dedicate more of my time to animation, to aspire to a level of creativity and ingenuity that, that Williams had. But at the same time, that you know, you have to do your academics. You have to You have to learn how to manage and market yourself thankfully there's a ton of resources out there to help you do that hey rich richard williams even has his own book that he the animator survival kit he kind yeah, of realized so i'm working on my book now I'm just kidding. <laughs> so yeah i liked this movie i liked i think even more than the movie i liked the documentary yeah um i mean i liked the original recobbled cut I'm sad that it never came to fruition. Like, it really is like he's, he tripped at the finish line. He finally had that funding and that goal and just couldn't couldn't do it. He was just too big of a perfectionist. And he, I don't know, it's a real shame that it didn't happen. But at the same time, it happened. And it's a story we can learn from and we can grow from. Um, I It, it is a trap. Like I mentioned, this is like, to me, the word that epitomizes this is tragedy. It's really sad and everyone in animation or not needs to kind of take lessons from this story so that it doesn't happen in their own lives and their own careers and their own relationships. Um, really good. So I'm excited. We got to talk about this because when we initially, when people are proposing to do thief and the cobbler, I rolled my eyes and I was like, really? Like, yeah, really people, people really want to hear about this movie. And um, <laughs> I, I actually think this, this episode won't be listened to that much because Everyone's going to think that, and they're not going to want to listen to it. And it's a real shame because it's it's fascinating to learn. Yeah, I totally agree with you. We had it on the on the docket, and I was I asked Morgan, I'm like, "Are we really doing this? Why are we doing this?" <laughs> and Morgan's like, "People wanted us to. I'm like, All right, whatever." <laughs> but it was, I mean, so so happy that we were able to watch this documentary. And when it and if it ever becomes available publicly, I've recommend to total look it up it's the persistence of vision yeah definitely i'm i'm glad i watched the documentary 
and the film because if I had only watched the film, it would just be like, oh, this is horrible with some good animation. So let's rate Thief and the Cobbler. Um, I think this merits two two ratings, one for no the kidding. Miramax version and one for yeah. the um, as good as it was going to be version, recobbled edition. So, yeah, what do you guys rate it? I gave the Miramax version two stars. Um, it was it was painful almost. I was like, eh, it's very, very forgettable. Um, but then when I watched the recobbled version, I, I, you know, a full extra star just for getting rid of the dialogue and the, the stupid... <laughs> Uh, narration you like full extra star just to take away that and I was like oh my gosh this is so much better and then um, an extra point uh, I would say 0.25 because of the quality of animation I appreciate more when I'm able to care about a character and I just didn't feel like I really cared about those characters I will say however that the documentary I cared I cared about Richard. I cared about the studio. And that one, I was like, had had a lot more of the human element to it. So I give that one, you know, four stars. But Recobbled, I'd give 3.25. Yeah, uh, two stars for Miramax version. Shame on y'all. <laughs> and um, <laughs> the, in the Recobbled version, um, four stars. Like, I think even the Recobbled version wasn't quite the epic that Williams was going for or saying that he would make. But so many improvements and such good animation um, there. And the documentary was a really solid documentary, too. I really enjoyed it. Okay, so I'm giving the Miramax version two stars, um, maybe even 1.5. It's just not good. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, no one should be subjected to watch it because it's (laughs) so painful. I mean, that is torture treatment right there is just say, hey. We're going to watch this the next hour and a half and then... <laughs> no, we should, we, should, we should add that to our catch and fire questions. <laughs> <laughs> Sad. <laughs> Thief and the Cobbler, Miramax edition. Ooh! <laughs> Ooh! <laughs> okay, and then I give the original version um, three and a half stars, mostly for the animation artistry and technique and execution. Beautiful. Very fantastic. I love it. I love everything about it. Um, I'm just, I still feel that the story lacked a bit and wasn't completely engaging enough for me, but character design and just the look of it, very, very cool. There we go. So, guys, that was a fantastic episode. I'm really grateful that people had actually (laughs) recommended this to listen and to watch because it was great. It was really fun to learn. Some parts weren't so great. Miramax. (laughs) (laughs) But other than that, I mean, I I feel like I've learned a lot just from watching this movie documentary and kind of learning about the history of it and fun. Exactly. My sentiments. All right, so I am going to read a few emails that we received. We've actually been kind of bad about reading emails because we just go so long recording that usually after we're done recording, we have to go places and we don't have time to read the emails. So this is just me reading the emails right now, but I felt we wanted to read a few and try to try to read a few every episode. So this first one is from Matthew Sample II. It says, to the rotoscopers. And when I say rotoscopers, I mean all the rotoscopers, even the elusive Mason Smith, who conveniently disappears and is apparently being responsible with his life. 
Yesterday, I sent a few tweets to y'all because I'm rather interested in your take on the film. The tweets are as follows. I can't wait. That film fascinates me. On the one hand, the artistic purity sounds refreshing. On the other hand, the idea that one man can out-animate hundreds of specialized artists sounds unrealistic. Is collaboration really that bad for art? Does compromise diminish creativity or temper limited vision? Is the masterpiece essential to art? Does it come immediately after the education or after experience? And lastly, and what about the human aspect of animation? Was this long process good for the man's soul? Was it worth the price? He goes on to say, Since then I have seen The Thief and the Cobbler. I found it on YouTube and watched it while sketching for my own personal project. Armed with that viewing and the Wikipedia article of the film, I can now be moderately opinionated. This film was not Richard Williams' masterpiece. Even if it was finished, it would not be a masterpiece. A masterpiece is much more than a hugely insane amount of work. A masterpiece unites an excellence of craft with an excellence of meaning. Ironically, it is Who Framed Roger Rabbit that is probably Mr. Williams' masterpiece piece. But that's another discussion for another time. That's not to say that it wasn't great animation. It has phenomenal animation, a wonderful array of visual experiences, truly innovative, yet hearkening back to the old masters. The sheer amount of labor involved is evident, even in its current partial state. Still, we can learn just as much from where this film fails as a masterpiece. One story. The story is definitely cobbled together. The ending is not as grand as Williams imagined it. Quote, it's to my knowledge the first animated film with a real plot that locks together with a detective story at the end. It has no sentiment and the two main characters don't speak. It's like a silent movie with a lot of sound." Unquote. Instead, the plot is full of action with no meaning. Beautiful action is not plot. Also, the Wikipedia article quotes someone, possibly Cavert, as saying that Williams has a beautiful script but was not following it faithfully. However, that article does not cite that quote. Number two, audience. The cartoon is not made for one man. Cartooning is way too expensive for a very small audience. Disney had a feel for his audience, and though he pushed his craft, he rarely sacrificed his audience for his craft. This film began in the, in the 60s, a time of great uncertainty in the animation business. The audience at that time was completely different than contemporary audiences. I still don't think we have a major audience with dark tastes enough for this film. This has some really dark elements. Today, we take the audience into consideration as we make films, and we budget them accordingly. To fail to do so is to fail as a filmmaker. Number three, meaning. What did he mean? Is this a promotion of the Middle East aesthetic? Is there anything other than the virtuous tenacity of a simple fool, a tried and true formula for animated heroes to inspire us? Is it the thief's sudden and rather apathetic surrender of the golden orbs to the cobbler, a sign of a change of heart? Why does he change? Is he finally tired of miserably failed robbery attempts? What about the love interest? What about the king who sleeps all the time? What about the witch? What about zigzag? There is no unifying transcendent meaning. And I'm not talking about something as blatant as in, say, Up, a verifiable masterpiece. I'm talking about something that can be even subtle. Snow White has a transcendent meaning, but it's very elusive. Something about the tenacity and the beauty of virtue, but that's not quite good enough to describe it. I'm sorry that the master spent so many years on this, but craft and spectacle can only carry a film so far. Did I enjoy it? Yes, I did. 
The moment when the thief is trying to get the big jewel out of the jar is hilarious. The expendable with the flagpole stuck in his chest riding the horse past the moon strikes me with an odd sensation I've never felt before. The two silent characters, the thief and the cobbler, fighting at the end is an interesting convergence. The cobbler's one statement in the film, it may not be clever or profound, but I like it. Films I would compare this to, Aladdin. Disney totally ripped off this movie. This isn't the first time they've done something like this, nor has it been the last time. However, Disney created the better film, and not just because theirs is finished quality. The story is better, the audience was right on, and it had some shallow meaning to it. Not quite Snow White. The Emperor's New Groove. Both films played with 2D versus 3D space, but The Emperor's New Groove did it much better. The Secret of Kells. Not only did they borrow the 2D sensibilities, but they did it on a budget. Beautiful, unified, simple. A true masterpiece in modern animated cinema. I think that's all the opinion I have tonight. It's past 2 a.m. I need to get some sleep. Seriously. Okay, one last thing. I don't think Richard Williams is down for the count. Apparently, he's working on some final amazing great film, should he live long enough to finish it. If he applies all that he's learned from his successes and failures, I have no doubt that it will be the masterpiece he longs to leave behind. Good night. All right, so I'm going to read another email, and some of these are a little older. They're referring to episodes we did a few months ago, but I still really like them and feel they're important to, to read. So this first one. Hi, guys, especially the girls for their ace Tinkerbell episode. Maggie here, and I am super delighted about the Tinkerbell episode because I find the Tinkerbell direct-to-DV movies really intriguing and entertaining, of course. Here are a couple musings about the subject. First, for direct-to-DVD, these movies are solidly good. Good characters, stories, songs songs even. Yeah, I know you guys ragged a little on those. I am most impressed with the scenery and cinematography. Just look at some of the shots in Secret of the Wings. I've watched all four movies. Secret of the Wings is my favorite because it's the most interesting story and it has real stakes and I can't help shipping Queen Clarion and the Lord of Winter. <laughs> Upon watching the movies, I was pleasantly surprised by Tinkerbell as a character. On most of the merchandise, she's the avatar for everyone's inner diva. But in the movie incarnations, she is a nicely well-rounded character with good and bad points. She's not a Mary Sue. Cough, Lightning McQueen, Postcards 1, cough. Actually, Lightning is just boring. She is a great role model for little girls. Like, seriously. She has her obligated girl role model qualities, like being a good friend, kind, wears dresses. But what she has that a lot of others don't is her cleverness. Sure, there are plenty of smart girl characters, but Tink is a creative craftsman. And even beyond that, she's an innovator. That's right. The usual creative types for girls manifest themselves in something as expected for girls, like dress designers a la Rarity from My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. But guess what? Tink can design a dress as well as a conveyor belt system, boat, airbrushes, aka useful things for society. In the second movie, you even see her trying to figure out the inner workings of a car. What? A girl who's interested in cars? Historically, us ladies get the short end of the stick when it comes to STEM things. But here we have a character aimed for young girls who is a passionate engineer. It's so refreshing. As a follow-up, I think it'd be great if some of the Tinkerbell merchandise took on a more crafty, engineery angle. For example, a Tinkerbell tool set. It's pretty canon with the character, just not canon for the, quote, girly toy aisle. As Disney's secondary franchises go, I think Tinkerbell is better than Cars. For one, the characters are a lot less grating. Well, that's all I have to say on Tinkerbell. I'm glad the movies are on Netflix. <laughs> I hope you guys are doing well and can't wait to hear your next episode. Maggie. P.S. I watched the extended Turbo trailer today, and I'm convinced it's Ratatouille with snails and racing. It is just 
ridiculously uncanny how similar they are. And, PPS, here's to a Frozen trailer with Monsters University. Alright, here's our next voicemail. It comes from Will. He says, Hey, I'm so glad you guys finally made an episode on Rise of the Guardians. I absolutely love all of the R-O-T-B-T-D movies and can't think that Guardians is the most underrated film to come along in a long time. I do think it's weird that the movie didn't do as well at the box office, considering my movie theater had a giant cardboard thing with all the Guardians and Pitch's individual posters on it up for a whole month. It was the biggest thing in the lobby. And shout out to Mason. I'm going to send you some Daft Punk love. I can't stop listening to Ram either. I still can't pick a favorite song. Anyways, thanks for having such an awesome show. Keep up the good work. Will. Thanks, Will. Our next email is from Mariah, and it's very simple. It says, can you do an Animation Addicts podcast on the Hunchback of Notre Dame or the Lion King? Yes, we can. Um, Those are ones that are actually very, very highly suggested. Um, So they're definitely on sort of the top. We have a list, and every time someone suggests something, we add a little tally to it. So those are ones that we will definitely be doing. Uh, we try not to do too many Disney films, even though, let's be honest, we're all sort of, you know, Disney fans and Pixar fans. Those are our favorite to listen to. But we like to spread it out, you know, like we did today with The Thief and the Cobbler, to sort of help us and everyone so we can kind of enrich our animation knowledge and and discussion so it's not just so one-sided you know yay Disney is awesome so yes we will be doing those ones because those are definitely Lion King is a masterpiece and Hunchback of Notre Dame is fabulous so we will be doing that in the future two more little short ones this email is from Simba's guard um, known as Tony he says dear rotoscopers I love animated movies and yours is the first podcast I've listened to that is devoted to them I'm trying to go back to listen to all the episodes you have done previously I really enjoy finding out more about the movies that I didn't know. I recently listened to episode four where you asked what movies fans would like to hear your review. Here's my list. Lion King, oh, another one for Lion King, Balto, Jungle Emperor Leo, Brother Bear, Ice Age, the whole franchise, Kung Fu Panda. Also, I have one question. Would you ever consider reviewing direct-to-video sequels? Thank you for your time. So thank you for the request. And yes, we will consider doing those. Um, We did the Tinkerbell movie, which is a direct-to-video sequel, but really our plan is to do all animated movies, whether they're a direct-to-video sequel or theatrical. Um, I think it's sometimes easier to do the original movie first, so kind of talk about that and then do the sequel. But the only sequel I think we've really ever done is Toy Story 2. So we're not very good with sequels right now. But yes, we will be doing direct-to-video sequels because those are definitely worth talking about. And lastly, Taylor Solis says... You guys are pretty awesome. I'm now more interested in Disney's Frozen. Well, thank you. We actually are really excited for Frozen. On the website, it's really become a great hub for all things Frozen. You know, a lot of the writers are very interested in it, so it's naturally something that we, you know, we want to write about, and that's something that we do write about. So there's a lot of Frozen stories on the website. Just go to therotoscopers.com and you can read more there. And lastly, we also on our YouTube, we talk about Frozen a little bit more in depth. We go and we do videos on some of the new stories that are posted, our thoughts on maybe character images or trailers. It's all a lot of fun. So make sure to check that out. And thanks for your email. So if you haven't, if you're new to our show, you can find us all over the interwebs. We are the Rotoscopers. You can find us on therotoscopers.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, uh, Pinterest, Instagram. We're basically like legit and we're all over the web. Um, Lots of cool things. Our website is really like 
our, our home because this is where you can find all the animation news, reviews, and fun. We have lots of writers who are very dedicated, and they put out really good work. So if you're interested about what's going on in the animation industry, you want to hear what other fans are saying, go go there. For more information about The Thief of the Cobbler and for things that we've talked about in this episode, go to the show notes, therotoscopers.com slash 43. That's where you can find all the information about this, things that we've talked to, and other basically all these links to you know different documentaries and we have the video links and all these things so you too can catch up on this um really really fun there so for every episode you know the show notes are always the number of the episode the rotoscopers.com slash the number and um yeah you can listen to us i mean obviously you're listening to us somehow but we are on stitcher itunes you can Download us directly from the website. Um, we really love it if you would go on iTunes and leave us a review. Um, it's a really, really easy way to support the show and to let other people find us through the iTunes search engine and awesome, awesome stuff there. So thank you for your support. As always, if you want to let us know your thoughts, you can send us a voicemail at therotoscopers.com slash voicemail or send us an email at therotoscopers at gmail.com. Voicemail's better. Uh, yes, Chelsea and I and Mason love the voicemails because one, we get to hear what you guys sound like, and two, um, it's yeah, they're shorter. <laughs> sometimes we get like sometimes we get really really long emails and we love them, but they're really hard to read on the air because they'll take about five minutes to read. So you know if you can leave us shorter emails that are you know, maybe ask one question or to the point, um, more likely you'll get on the air. In other words, quit being creepy. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We we love hearing from our fans. It really it really keeps us going. It's fun. So Mason, where can they find you? Uh, well, I have a Twitter now, and I really don't have enough friends uh, followers. So we're gonna do a follower drive. I'm just kidding. Let's see. Uh, I think it's at Mason S M T X, like San Marcos, Texas. So that's my Twitter. Um, and then you can usually find me like writing articles and stuff for the website. You can find me, Morgan Stradling, on Twitter, at Morgan Stradling. And Chelsea, take it away. You can find me at Chelsea Robson at Twitter. You can also ChelseaRobson.com. At the moment, that'll take you straight to my Facebook page. Uh, Eventually, I'll get other things up there as well. But, yeah, just remember, Chelsea Robson. Chelsea Robson. Chelsea Robson. Okay, guys, (laughs) thanks for listening. And until next time, we are the Rotoscopers. Hey, I, I appreciate you and, and Chelsea's amazing editing skills. Like, honestly, <laughs> Chelsea, if, like, the whole, like, you know, uh, I don't know what your goal is in Nashville, um, is if, if that doesn't work, and I'm sure, it, I'm sure it will work out, you know, because you're amazingly talented, you could always be uh, an editor. <laughs> well, you could always, you could always I be guess. a sound editor. I actually went to school for recording engineering, and so that's one of oh, the things that okay. I, I have done. <laughs> I've always um, wanted to ask you what you went to school for. <laughs> That's my. <laughs> I've always wanted to ask you. I I I like this podcast. And I'm glad we're <laughs> me yeah. too. The only thing that worries me is I don't want to like sign on to a major studio and be and then be like, well, um, I don't know if we want to hire you because you always make fun of our films on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like uh, the the views and commentaries expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect <laughs> the views of, of, of the actual Disney person. Pixar. <laughs> <laughs> uh.
<laughs> I'm more of a real persona than an actual person. Come on, you guys I know how this know. works. I mean, maybe I'll just have to be like really like nerdishly optimistic about everything from here on out. You're like, oh no no no. Um, what happened to oh. episodes one through forty three? Oh no no, those those got lost. They don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> but you really want to check out forty four on because yeah. Everything- <laughs> From 44. Hey, we're about to come up on our 50th episode. I know. What do we want to do? Well, I bet if we annoyed Jim Cummings enough, he would be on our show. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay, Chelsea's really good at reaching out to people. And, like, yeah, she's really good at that. I think Chelsea should. Because she read that book, How to Make Friends and Hypnotize People. <laughs> we support you in your dream. Oh, by the way, our Pokemon episode on the day it was released was our most downloaded day ever. Really? Wow, really? A lot of people like gave me heck bad. for being a Gen 1-er. Oh, who cares? There's so okay. many people who are. They are, really. I, okay. Um, I am, if I were to be anything. So, <laughs> you are things, Chelsea. Come on. No, I'm um, like, if I were to be <laughs> anything in the Pokemon realm, I'm definitely a Gen 1-er. Only think- via, like... Yeah. I think I would be a super nerd. Um, Morgan would be a cool trainer, and uh, Chelsea would be like a lass. What? A lass. A lass. That's she's true. a class. She's a she's a type of trainer. It's just who's just like a regular girl who isn't like really into Pokemon, but she has them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> totally. <right>. <laughs> <laughs> Not that this is Chelsea, but they're always like, Oh, don't touch me! Go Clefable! <laughs> <No. laughs> anyway. 